how much of your life do you want to spend trying to get something that has proven to be elusive? And if it's proven to be elusive for a decade, I would say the odds are it's going to be elusive for 11 years and 12 years. So what I would do is I would figure out why has it proven to be elusive? Why is what I want to know. Welcome back to the show. I'm Travis Chappell, and I believe that if you can connect with the best, you can become the best. So after creating 800 podcast episodes about building your network, I've come to realize that networking is really just making friends. If you're doing it the right way, anyway. Join me as I make friends with world-class athletes like Shaquille O'Neal, entertainers like Rob Deerdeck, authors like Dr. Nicole LaPera, former presidents like Vicente Fox, or even the occasional FBI hostage negotiator, billionaire real estate mogul, or polarizing political figure. So if you want to make more friends that help you become a better version of yourself, then subscribe to the show and keep on listening because this is Travis Makes Friends. What is going on, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Travis Makes Friends. Today, I have the pleasure of making friends with Trey Gowdy. Actually, it's Dr. Trey Gowdy from what <laughs> I was listening to the other day, but but you didn't really tell many people about that, right? <laughs> no. Uh, yeah, the notion that you can get a doctorate in about 30 minutes has a lot of appeal to me. Most of my friends took about seven or nine years, so yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> Forgot about it. Just one of one of the many accomplishments. Just like push down the list. You know, Travis. If you live long enough, you, it's just your turn to get stuff. So it's <laughs> not. It's not like I really. What I tell people is, I was as shocked as you were to hear that they were giving me a doctorate. That's what I tell <laughs> my friends. I know how shocked you were. I was shocked too. <laughs> yeah, just not sure if they just addressed the envelope wrong. I think literally when you get to be my age, they think, well, we've already given it to everyone that was deserving. Now we got to start the <laughs> list of people who really aren't deserving. And he's on that list. <laughs> uh, that's perfect. Perfect. Fantastic way to start this interview, Trey. I want to dive into some context here before we really go heavy into the book. But before we do that, just a quick plug here for those of you that are listening that won't get a chance to listen to the full episode. Before you do anything else, go pick up a copy of Trey's new book, Start, Stay, or Leave. I'm about a little bit over a third of the way into it, and uh, it's it's been fantastic so far. And what I really love about this book, and like I said, we'll get more in depth later, but what I really love about it is that this tackles one of the one of the most important areas in life that I don't feel like there's not a ton of information or knowledge around, which is also what I appreciate about your, your book about asking questions. Two very, very important matters, asking good questions and making good decisions that will affect anybody, no matter what it is that they decide to do with their life. So I'm excited to jump into that in a second here. And so if you're listening before, before you do anything else, go pick up a copy of his book, Start, Stay, or Leave. But Trey, I want to jump back into the past here and get a little bit of an idea for how we got to where we are today. So paint a picture for us, if you can, 11-year-old Trey Gowdy, set the scene. What's What was your family life like? Where were you in the world? And how did that you know junior high, high school years go for you? 11-year-old Trey was living, my father's a doctor. He was a pediatrician, but he convinced us, Travis, that we were poor. I had the only poor doctor, medical doctor in the world for a father. My mom stayed at home. I have three sisters. So there were four of us and an 11-year-old Trey would be running around with his shirt off outdoors, which I would now, my neighbors would call the cops if I did that. <laughs> but I love sports. Sports was every, I would be outdoors from the moment I woke up until my mom made me come in. And just in particular, whatever one was in season, I really love baseball. 
But, you know, I mean, I got these images. I would, you know, my three sisters really weren't all that into like playing sports with me, not all day long. I would hit the ball. I would go get the ball and I would throw the ball back and try to hit the bat with it. So it's hard to play baseball by yourself. I'm familiar. I'm familiar with that exact process. (laughs) Yeah. Basketball. My father, my father loves to tell about, I think he didn't think I was very smart and he probably was right. (laughs) I would be out there in the sleet playing basketball. I mean, I just, but you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not quite six feet tall. I'm deceptively slow. So I, I wasn't great at any sport. I loved them, but I wasn't good enough to like, maybe could I have made the golf team back then? If I weren't working in the afternoons, maybe. I mean, golf is about all I do now and I'm okay at that. But just my regret from that time period is I viewed school as something to be endured mm. and finished and all the books that I was supposed to read in high school and college, I did not read. I'm mm-hmm. trying to read them now. But I didn't really like kick it in academically until law school. And I just, you know, I tell kids, your job right now is to learn. I mean, they, you don't have a mortgage. You don't have kids. You, your job is to learn. And I wish that I had taken my own advice. That's my big regret from that time period. <clears throat> I was going through a few things before this interview. And I realized we, we had a few things in common. Okay, so we both grew up in a Baptist church environment. You have a 30-year-old son who enjoys real estate and golf. I'm 30 and I enjoy real estate and golf. And then we both have the unfortunate condition of being Cowboys fans, which hasn't worked out basically since I've been alive. But for some reason, I still throw on the blue and silver every, every season. And then now come to find out, we also you know, played a lot of basketball and stuff like that in the, in the, you know, I didn't get much sleep where I was in Southern California, but definitely whatever the weather was, I was out playing basketball just because that was what was fun to do. But beyond that is basically where all commonality ceases to exist because (laughs) you went this very kind of traditional path with, with having a dad as a doctor and, and went into, went into law school. And then, I mean, that's still pretty early to start taking education seriously. I think, you know, there's still a lot of people who don't take education seriously in their forties or something. And so I think you still were able to figure out pretty early on that, Hey, maybe there's, there's something to this learning thing. Like maybe the biggest thing that separates people, you know, s- separates the, the, where I want to be from where I am now is just the knowledge on how to get there. I should probably spend some time figuring that out. And then what I really liked about what you did next was focusing on jobs that filled you up and then also allowed you to excel into the next phase of your life and your career. So can you talk about regards of for for young people and and if you can kind of give the answer in a in the context of both that young person making a decision and then potentially also the parent as they're thinking about how their kids are going to work through this. How do you think of those early career moves, those early working experiences from delivering a newspaper at 14 to you said you were working in a warehouse or something yeah. you didn't enjoy the work, but you enjoyed the people and you decided to do that because you liked the people and the relationships were important. Can you talk through like what should people from 14 to 24 be looking for in their career? Should they start working that early or should they be playing golf on the golf team and doing more kid stuff? How do we think about these types of things, both as a kid and as a parent? Yeah, I probably overcorrected with my own children, Travis. I don't recall making either one of my children work. It wasn't an option for me. My father said, if you want spending money, you're going to work. And Mm. I mean, he loaned me the money to buy my motorized bike for my paper route, Mm. but I had to pay him back. So it wasn't like he was like gifting me a capital expenditure. (laughs) I I missed 
you know, I missed some things that I would have. It's hard to get up super early in high school and be awake um, for class. That particular job choice was a mistake to get up at four o'clock in the morning because I didn't have the discipline to go to bed at nine or 10 like you're supposed to. So I'm I'm going to school on four hours of sleep. That was not a genius move on my behalf. <laughs> bagging groceries. I mean, you learn a ton bagging groceries. You learn how people interact with cashiers and bag boys. I would position myself, Travis, to take the groceries out for a Democrat state senator who wound up being a Democrat congresswoman. She wound up representing my area. Hmm. I would position myself because I liked politics back then, and I wanted to take her groceries out and talk to her. And she was so kind to me, even though she knew you know, my dad was a Republican. I was super, super conservative. I'm asking her these questions that, you know, a super conservative teenage kid, but she had all the patience in the world. So I saw how sometimes the richest people gave the smallest tips. The poorest people were the ones who put the most amount of money in a Salvation Army kettle. So I, I learned a ton. So what I would tell young people is, look, I mean, you ought to enjoy it. I mean, you're in your youth. You ought to find a job you really like. If you like people, then yeah, you can work at a Brewster's ice cream place. If you don't like people, you probably shouldn't be in retail. But you don't need to like read a book to know that. There is a life lesson here, though. You mentioned the warehouse. It was probably the hardest job of all that I had. It was unair conditioned. I mean, there were no windows. But I loved the guys that I worked with. And they came from markedly different backgrounds than mine. Their father was not a doctor. They were, you know, college was maybe, maybe, maybe a distant dream, possibly, but it wasn't expected. And you just learn to get along with folks. You learn what you have in common, which usually is a lot more than you don't have in common. Totally. Usually. The other thing I would tell people, Travis, is this, and I wish I could go back and tell myself, there are a thousand ways to get to where you think you want to get. The notion that you have to go to this school. I mean, I used to have these kids and come to me and say, I have to go to Annapolis or West Point or Harvard or Cornell because I want to do this and I, I just have to. Okay, well, those are really hard schools to get into. So you mean to tell me that you absolutely have to get into a super competitive school or the rest of your life is over? I yeah. mean, that's what you're, that's, that's what it, you, but they believe it. So, I mean, I sit there and think, okay, well, you don't even know where members of Congress went to school. You have no idea where they went to school. Some of them may not have gone to college. So don't tell me you can't get where you want to get. There are a thousand ways to get there, but you're never too like young to be thinking about where it is you want to get to. Just don't think there's one way to do it, but you're never too young to be thinking, what do you want your brand to be? What do you want people to say about you, think about you, and whether it's true or not? Not just what people think about you, but is it true? And you know, have some kind of a plan. I didn't have a plan in college. I kicked it in in law school because I didn't have a choice. I mean, I, I was I was going to get married. I, I I had to have a job, and and I thought I needed good grades to get the kind of job I wanted. So it was a fear of failure is what motivated me. A fear of failure. I want to dive in a little further on that, but before we do, just to button up something about your relationship with your dad. Do you look back on? It, it sounded like he was pretty tough, especially in terms of money, and he seemed to be pretty frugal. I, I would assume, if, you know, 
would invest probably and probably did a pretty pretty well for himself in life if he was a doctor and was that frugal. In, in terms of your relationship with him, do you look at that as you know, negative, positive, neutral in terms of how maybe difficult he was on you. Cause you obviously didn't make your kids work and you treat you, you, you did things a little bit differently, but it also obviously ended up working out for you. It gave you a strong work ethic and allowed you to excel in a lot of different areas. Maybe other people might not have. Do you have any thoughts around that? Yeah, I would never have won my first race for solicitor for district attorney. If it had not been for my father, my father to this day, he's still with us. My father to this day is one of the most popular people in my hometown. And I cannot tell you the number of people who voted for me, supported me because my father took care of their kids or their grandkids or something he did in the medical profession. We are very, very different. When we play Trivial Pursuit, you have to put a, a stopwatch on my father. He's going to take 30 minutes to make sure that he has the right answer. Even though he knew it the second you asked the question, it takes him a long, I use the word glacial to describe <laughs> it. It takes him forever. This is why, you know, I mean, now it's easy for me to do it. My dad didn't have a dad. I mean, he his father was a drunk. He Not just a drunk, the town drunk. So when you don't have a dad, no, he, he, okay. he moved to the upstate. He was in another part of South Carolina, very small town. My dad grew up dirt poor. So you got a, you're trying to make it on your mom's salary. She was a school teacher and teachers didn't make anything back then either. And your father's a town drunk and he's working his way. My dad never graduated college. He didn't have the money to finish college. He took all the science and math he could and then went to medical school. And back then you could do that. You can't now, but all he knew was work. So I'm sure he's sitting there thinking, this kid's in the yard making you know, C's and B's working, chipping balls over the house, even though I told him not to chip balls over the house, he's going to break a window if he, you know, pulls up and hits one thin. I'm sure that he sat there and thought, you know, God, why did you give me this rebellious son who doesn't do any of what? And I'm sitting there thinking, why'd you give me a Marine drill sergeant for a father? <laughs> it probably is what both of us needed, even Ironics. if not a bit what he wanted. But no, my, but, you know, people change and you have to allow them the freedom to change. You cannot confine, you know, I live in the same town I grew up in and it drives my wife nuts when we will see somebody and they go back and say, yeah, I remember when you were in the, you were 11 years old and you got kicked out of Sunday school. And my wife's sitting there thinking, okay, that was 40 years ago. He's been the district attorney. He was in Congress <laughs> I mean, can you not let him grow up? There's nothing you can do to make up for that, man. I, I was actually proud I got kicked out. So it doesn't <laughs> bother me one bit. I, I hope they keep telling the story. I was happy. About man, an another thing in common. I definitely broke a window on my front, at the front of my house. My parents were up. My any, Anytime I broke anything, I always had to pay to fix it. So I'd be slaving away in the yard, earning three or four bucks an hour, you know, working something to pay for that window for a little while. But yeah, okay. Sounds like it was overall fantastic experience. And you know, your dad is still, you know, learning and growing even all these years later, which is really awesome. And it sounds like it's kind of a similar relationship that that you have with your kids, from what I've from what I've heard or, or read before, where they have something in common with you in in the fact that they're both attorneys. But in the way that they want to go throughout living the rest of their life, you maybe have some differing opinions or differing even viewpoints or perspectives in that sense. How have you worked through those 
I guess, disagreements with a kid. And I'm asking this from a place of selfishness because I got two kids and it's stuff. When you leave the hospital, they don't give you the handbook to parenting. Oh, you know, yeah. it, it just feels like when you're walking out, it's kind of like, a, hey, did, do they know that we took this baby with us? Like they, <laughs> they saw us walk out with this baby, right? You know, so I now selfishly, whenever I get the opportunity to sit down with somebody who's raised kids and done a seemingly successful job doing so, I like to ask questions about parenting. So if you could indulge me for a second and talk to me a little bit about how you've kind of, you know, had these more grown up disagreements and grown up solutions to the problems that you've experienced, you know, being a parent and having kids. Well, I write about both of these things in the book and to illustrate different points. My son, my wife and I were actually talking about this a couple of days ago. My son is a really, really, really good golfer. And he was he was really, really, really good his junior year of high school. And then he walks in and says, I don't want to play golf my senior year. My father would have made me play golf. His reason was he wanted to go to Stanford, which is a really, really hard school to get into. And he wanted to concentrate on his academics. I mean, he was doing really well, but he wanted to take every AP class he could possibly take and put himself in a position to get into Stanford. That was his dream school. And he got in. And we went out there and visited and walked around and everything was fantastic until August before he's supposed to leave to go. And he changed his mind. Now, I would have been on a plane to Palo Alto. My father would have said, you know what? This is a really good opportunity. You're going, whether you want to or not, whether you know a soul or not, you're going. I took a different approach, Travis. I said, you have earned the right to say no. I think you ought to go, but you've earned the right to say no. My daughter was fantastic in theater. Fantastic. Great little actress. I mean, that woman, that child can talk more than any human being I have ever met in my life. And she no stage fright, nothing. And then she just decided she didn't want to do it anymore. And the way I grew up, you say you grew up Baptist. I grew up Baptist. They said, well, God gave you a gift. You have to use it. Don't bury it. Yeah. And my response it. was, well, then he should have given me the desire because he <laughs> yeah. didn't give me the desire. And, and if he's God, then he can give me both. And he didn't. And so, again, I, I won't be writing any parenting books. They turned out great. But I never... I tried to let them make their own decisions. I give them the best advice I can. I did not like being made to do things. Hmm. I, I resented it. And I probably like underachieved to prove my point. I didn't make Abigail stay in theater. Watson went up going to another school. But life turns out just fine. They got where they wanted to get. And they did it without me trying to live my life vicariously through them. So transitioning now back into your career a little bit, you've had very prestigious career, what many would look at and call quote unquote successful. I'm curious, first of all, to hear what your definition of successful would be. Um, and then I have a couple follow-up questions. <clears throat> My definition of success is whether people who know me best respect me. That's my definition. So that includes my wife, my sisters, my childhood friends, Senator Tim Scott, John Ratcliffe, Kevin McCarthy, people that I am very, very close to. If they say we respect him, I want to be remembered if I'm remembered at all. And that's a good point. The reality is, Travis, we're not going to be remembered a whole lot after we're gone, except by maybe a few people. The question is, what will they remember? Those few people, what will they remember? And I want them to remember me as somebody who was fair. He was good in the courtroom, and he cared about the victims of crime. He cared about people who could not fight back. Hmm. 
I don't care if anybody mentions Congress. Could care less. I'm glad to have a, a job at Fox, but nobody's going to say he was a great television host. I mean, I can barely read the teleprompter. Nobody's going to say that. But I do want him to say he was fair and he cared about people who could not fight back for themselves. And if you say that, then I've been successful. You have said across multiple interviews now, both in your and then also in your book, all over the place that being a being a federal prosecutor, being a being a prosecutor or state prosecutor, the the district attorney was the best job that you ever had, or at least your maybe most favorite or most fulfilling thing that gave you most meaning in life. Why was it that and nothing else that you did? Well, number one, I loved it. There is no feeling in the world like standing in front of 12 people that you don't know and persuading. And I like persuasion. Politics right now is about ratifying what people already believe. You go find out what they believe and you repeat it back to them and they clap. And you don't need to be really good to do that. Persuading is taking people who are told this person is presumed innocent and convincing them beyond a reasonable doubt and doing it in a fair way. Mm. I mean, there are rules in court. And you got to follow those rules. So it's a system where the result and the process both matter. In politics, the result is all that matters. You know, okay, so I ran a negative ad that wasn't true, but I won. Or so I took down a bunch of my opponent's yard signs in the dead of night, but I needed to because it's really important that I win. That's not the way the justice system works. You have to do it the right way. I was okay at it. And there's just a feeling you get. You know, I had a case, Travis, where... I mean, imagine these parents, their daughter had been dead a decade and no one had been arrested. No arrests, no prosecution. So after a decade, you can see the grief etched on their faces. I mean, you're a parent. It's one thing to lose a child, but to not know who and why, you could literally see the marks of grief on their face. And to be able after a decade to go into a courtroom and convict the person who did it. There's just a bond that develops between the survivors or the victims of crime and a sex assault where you survive, but but you are you feel powerless and you're afraid and you're scared. I wanted the last image that young woman had was the man being led out in shackles and leg mm-hmm. irons. That that's the image I wanted. So she could say, you know what, he doesn't have the power. There's nothing in politics that compares to that. Yeah. In your book, you talked about how being a prosecutor started to kind of wear on you, or this is, I think, being a federal prosecutor started to wear on you a little bit, and you were trying to make the decision. It was kind of the beginnings of making the decision to leave that because you said over half of the cases that you tried were were drug cases. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. And that you were realizing that just the way that the laws were set up, that it was it was it was not comparable or not proportional. Proportional. Yes, yes. Thank you. It was not proportional to what the crime was. And you would have somebody who is in child pornography that would get six months more than somebody who had cocaine with intent to distribute, even though they had not committed any violent crimes. They had not been a part of any sort of, you know, negligible activities at that point, other than they had possession of it with intent to distribute, but they were getting basically the same as these people who were committing atrocities. I guess my question would be, how did seeing that on a front lines level, alter your ability to have empathy for others that grew up in a completely different way than the way that you grew up? Oh, I think people will tell you, particularly when I became a state DA, if you hurt someone, I I was tough on you. For economic crimes, which I consider drugs to be an economic crime, I, I did what I had to do, but I didn't put my foot into it. 
when you see someone, an elderly couple beaten to death with a hammer, that is something to get really, really animated and pour your heart and soul into. When you have a kid that grew up with nothing and he is selling marijuana or cocaine powder or cocaine base, that is an economic crime to me. It is not a crime of violence. And I think there's a really, really disparate way that I view those cases. And so when I was a federal prosecutor, I didn't do violent crime cases. I only did one. <laughs> I did one murder case, and that's rare. Some carjackings, but not what you get in state court. But even then, you know, I get this guy life without parole for methamphetamine dealing. And Susan Smith, who drowned her two sons, and whose husband I still run into in my hometown. Talk about wow. the, the the grief etched on someone's face. Still see. So she's eligible for parole. She drowned her two sons and she's eligible. And this meth dealer, and look, I'm not into meth. You shouldn't <laughs> sell meth. Yeah. I mean, period. <laughs> to be clear. Her, but there's no comparison right. no, between yeah, being a meth close. dealer and drowning your kids. So I needed to leave the federal system. And then I had to leave the state system. I don't want to ruin the end of the book for you. By the way, I live in the end, if you're wondering. I don't want you to flip through to the very end. I do live in the end, but not forever. I had to leave it all together because, you know, what little bit of faith I had left was just frayed. Just seeing act of depravity after act of depravity after malice. I just, I couldn't reconcile it, Travis, with what I was hearing on Sunday mornings. Yeah, it's it's pretty wild to put that in into perspective when you just try to go about regular life after that. And this is happening in you know, post 2000 South Carolina in the United States, you know, it breaks your heart to think about what's happening in these other countries that have even oh, more gosh. broken judicial systems than we do. And yeah, it's happening all, all over the planet. You've made multiple career transitions when you've come to these kind of crossroads decisions. And there was one thing that you said in your book when you were making the transition from federal prosecutor to the circuit solicitor, and you're deciding whether or not to run. And for some context for those listening or watching this, it was an all odds stacked against you type of an election where it was against an entrenched incumbent who had been elected several times, just switched to being a Republican from being a Democrat, had support from both sides of the aisle, had never lost an election. And you're just this new up and comer that's coming up. You can't start running with your current job as a federal prosecutor because there's a conflict of interest there. So you'd have to quit that without knowing whether or not you were actually going to win the election when all the odds said that you were going to lose the election. And then to top it all off, you're at a wedding and this person comes up to you who's the opposition, who is with the opposition anyway, one of, one of the leaders of the campaign, and basically starts talking crap at this wedding and saying like, hey, <laughs> we like you. You're probably good for some other positions later on, but this is not the one. You should probably give up on this. Ultimately, the, the pro of purpose and meaning outweighed all of the arguments for security, predictability, and familiarity. So the question that I have for you is, do you think... For all people, that purpose and meaning should outweigh most other values in the value hierarchy, even if they are prudent values like security and predictability, or is it a situational thing? I think you have to know yourself. And if you're super, super risk averse, then quitting your job to run against an entrenched incumbent is hard. It's hard. And as I write in the book, I was going to drop out after that, <laughs> after my friend said, who's now a friend, we ran a poll, you're losing 80-20. Even after all the consequences of that decision, I'd already left a job. I didn't want to fail. So I know myself and I have a mortal fear of failure. 
I don't care if you say I was successful. That doesn't motivate me. What I don't want you to say is he was a failure. So here I was going to fail in a spectacular way in front of my hometown. And I needed a voice in my life to talk some sense into me, which we all need. So there have been other times when I could have done something or, you know, there were other opportunities I could have run for things when I was in politics. I mean, you can you can run for governor. You can run for Speaker of the House. It was an opening while I was there. And one of my very close friends was going to get it and he didn't get it. We literally had to talk Paul Ryan into it. He didn't want to do it. You have to know yourself. So I'm really big in this book. I do get it's wrong to lie to people, but I get why we do it. We want people to think that we're smarter than we are or faster or way less or whatever. I get it. I do not get lying to ourselves. At this point, security probably, you know, once you can check that box, once you can say, look, I'm not going to starve to death. My wife's not going to starve to death. My kids are not going to starve to death. You check that box, it liberates you. But if you can't check that box, then, and it's a, you know, the other, my paradigm is what's the worst thing that can happen. That's the way I make decisions. So if the worst thing that can happen is I cannot meet the needs and responsibilities I've agreed to meet, then I probably should not do it. But if the worst thing that can happen is I maybe get embarrassed because I come up on the short end of a vote. Then you get a job at a private law firm that pays handsomely as your failure. And I don't have to run again. And I'm probably wealthier because it pays a lot better than being in public service. I had an old Sunday school teacher who used to he used to tell me not to go through life saying what I wish I had done. And I had that voice. I used to walk on the golf course, not play in, but I live right beside it, walk and make it up my mind whether or not to leave a job that I really like to run for district attorney. And it was a hard decision. And I'd always say, you know what? It just I can't beat him. I shouldn't do it. And I would hear his voice saying, do not go through life saying what you wish you had done. Yeah. And I didn't want to be sitting at the nursing home, you know, telling nurses war stories, boring them to death about the time I almost ran for office. Yep. Yeah. I love that perspective is what's driven me in a lot of the bigger decisions that I've made is the the rocking chair test. If you're on your rocking chair at 95 years old and you're coming down to the last, you know, couple years, will I regret not having given this a shot? I fear that so much more than failing at that thing because it's there's nothing I can do about it at that point. And at that point, all the people who would have laughed at me or mocked at me, mocked me or talked about me behind my back or whatever, they were gone out of my life 40 years ago. So why am I going to make the decision because because of them when I'm the one that's going to sit in the rocking chair and reflect on my life? And it's you only going to be the people closest to me that it affects. You raise an amazing point there. Who are the voices that we let speak into our lives? I mean, social media, it's so much worse for my kids' generation than it was maybe somebody scratches something on a bathroom wall at my high school, but maybe, but it's so much worse now. All these voices like defining success or setting expectations for our lives, even people that don't know us. I pick your advisors carefully, but also be really, really careful who you let speak into that definition. You use the word fail when you were on the rocking chair that you failed. And I would say, Travis, you get to define what is failure. I mean, Jesus Christ lost a vote to a guy named Barabbas. He lost, the crowd had a choice. You can pick Jesus or you can pick a notorious murderer. And they picked Barabbas. Yeah, and so, the stakes were pretty high yeah, uh, for that for that choice. Yeah, he wound up dying, but he didn't fail. So losing and failing to me are two different things. 
And I would argue failing is not venturing. It is not trying. Yeah. Yeah. You said that in your book when you said that that was kind of the last kind of exclamation point on that whole section was basically like, even if I lost, it would have still been a win for me because a real loss would have been never trying. There's a lyric from a song that I wrote on my phone. I had it saved with a picture of my son when he was first born that said, my only failure in life is never having tried or something like that, or the biggest failure in life is never trying. And it just kind of stuck with me to this day. And I, I really liked how you, how you put that in your book. And so I, I wanted to ask one, one question on that as well, because there's one part where you said the desire, there's a big desire to make pain end. And when, cause you were, you were just, you were remarking how insane it was for you to have put months and months of thought into this decision to run. And then how this one three minute conversation with your opposition was enough to make you go, you know what? He's right. I should stop. And it was minutes later where you had come to that conclusion and how crazy it is in retrospect, when you're looking back on it to be like, what was I thinking of? Like what I was, I was that, you know, whatever weak or scared or fearful that I was willing to quit after I just spent nine months coming up with this decision. And I felt good about it. And I looked at the worst case scenario. It turns out it wasn't that bad. You know, like I already did all of this work. And then this one person says one thing one time, and it just (laughs) makes me go, ah, we'll quit. We'll throw in the towel. But you said that there's this massive desire to make pain end. And then the desire to avoid pain before it comes is also just as big. And I thought that was just a really uh, succinct way to put that because it does sound like anybody listening to this would be like, oh, that's funny that we should you know, scoff at that or whatever. But everybody listening to this has also made that exact same decision where you put all this time and effort and you do this thing. And the first sign of potential failure or maybe failure just becoming more of a reality than you originally thought, and you're, you're done, you're giving up. So the question that I want to ask you is more related to the opposite side of that because I do think that there's also this sunk cost fallacy that you have to take in consideration where sometimes you you continue doing something because you've put nine months of work into it or three years of work into it or 18 whatever years of work into it when it is actually healthy to let it go. So my question is more like, how do you reconcile the polarity of those two things when you know this is the right thing, but you're letting other people get in your head and you should keep doing it versus like, well, I've been doing this for 12 years, so it would be dumb to quit now, even though I don't feel like this is the right move for me. How do you deal with those? It is so hard, Travis, to balance intuition and emotion, which would include pain and logic. And it, I cannot imagine trying and trying and trying to do something. I mean, think about a woman or a man that has been struggling on all these mini tours and, you know, they're a stroke away or they're two strokes away from qualifying and they want to get their tour card and all of the sacrifices, their family, and they're living in hotels and they just can't let it go. I mean, Tom Brady, speaking of can't let it go, I mean, you could argue he came back for one too many years. Logic and knowing what you want that final like scene to look like. I mean, how much of your life, we got one shot at this, one crack at it. How much of your life do you want to spend trying to get something that has proven to be elusive? And if it's proven to be elusive for a decade, I would say the odds are it's going to be elusive for 11 years and 12 years. So what I would do 
is I would figure out why has it proven to be elusive? Why is what I want to know? Is it because you didn't have the capital? The people that know about your product love it, but you don't have the capital. Okay, that's one thing. Is it this technology's caught up with you and it's just it's it's just not there anymore? It's like a fax machine. You know, people just don't use them anymore. So I'm big on logic. I mean, I, I don't like pain, but the logic, I think, is what ought to drive our decisions. It, mm. I don't mean to exclude joy and happiness and all that. Let it pick the music. You like music, I like music. Let it pick the music for your life. But logic has got to set the course or you're probably not going to like where you're going. Yeah, I really like the way that you put it in the book was you said, consult your emotions and intuition as you approach decisions logically. I thought that was a really proven way to put it because, you know, there's a lot of people that would say to only subscribe to what your logic is telling you, but then you don't get kind of what you're saying before, you know, you're writing out the pros and cons list. You don't realize it's like, oh, well, there's, there's 12 cons and there's six pros, but really this one pro on this list significantly outweighs all of the cons because it's what I want. And it is part of that picture at the end. And I don't care if the odds are against me. I don't care if it's going to take me longer than I think. I don't care what happens in the meantime. That's just what I want. And I don't know how to not want that anymore, but I don't feel a piece about what I'm currently doing. And it allows you the ability to also, like you said, consult your emotions, consult your gut, your intuition, but also be able to justify or maybe rationalize or prove logically that, you know, this is something that that I've thought about. It's not purely emotional or based on my gut. It's a balancing. I probably undervalue emotion. I don't want to say I'm a stoic, but I like to think logically. And you should want a prosecutor, by the way, to think logically. I'm not. There's a book, Blink. I'm sure I read it. It made a lot of sense that our initial instinct is often correct. I know a lot of people go with their gut instinct. It's got to be a combination of them. And you have to know what your weakness is. If people mm. who are prone to making rash impulse buys, they do not need to give emotion. <laughs> they don't need to put it in the front seat of the car. Yeah. They need to, it can ride, but it doesn't need to be in the front seat. Yeah, yeah. You can ride on the roof. Logic to set the course. And then the yellow stuff to make the trip enjoyable is the way I look at it. This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need this platform, guys. I'm telling you, Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging candidates so you can connect with those people even faster. And it doesn't just help you hire faster. In fact, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And look, guys, one of the things that I wish I would have used Indeed for is this matching service. You can search and search and search and search and search all day long, but to actually be presented with quality candidates, like 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 hiring a, a recruiter for you that's presenting people that has actually done the work to vet them and uh, bring quality people in front of you, that work by itself is, uh, the fact that it's done by a software instead of like a team of high quality recruiters is, is pretty insane. So they leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day, which is why Indeed's matching engine 
is the best one that you can use. It's constantly learning from your own preferences. So the more you use it, the better it gets at doing the job for you. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility over at indeed.com slash Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. If you were to narrow down, you know, like I said, you've written some several books and a couple on some of the biggest topics that I think are super undervalued, like making decisions and asking questions. If there were, you know, two, three life skills that were, you know, kind of along those lines that you could label as like these three life skills are very important, no matter what path you're taking, what career you want. If you don't want a career, if you're raising kids, if you're not raising kids, these three skill sets or practices will, if you can learn them, they will help you and serve you no matter what. What what would you say those three things are? The ability to use questions to move people, which is why I wrote a whole book on it. We are wired to want to tell people what we believe. I believe X, therefore sit there and listen to me. And sometimes it works, but people are selfish and they like to talk themselves. So move them by letting them talk. But your question, I got a, a question. I, I do a podcast and one of the questions was, what question would you ask a group of Christians who were contemplating whether or not to adopt or sponsor a neglected child? You get one question to ask. And I thought that was a great exercise. What question? Not, not what comment, but what question? And so my question is, do you believe what Jesus had to say? And if you do, then go look at what he said about children. But can you make your point with questions? And then self-awareness. I am huge into self-awareness. <laughs> Travis, I was never going to be a basketball player. It was <laughs> it was in the DNA. I mean, it doesn't matter how much I loved it. It was never going to happen. So, you know, <laughs> I can go to all the camps in the world. I could bankrupt my parents sending me to basketball camp. <laughs> it was never going to happen. You're going to end up 34 years old playing in Turkey or something. and I'm not even to... good enough to do that. <laughs> I'd have to play in like, I don't know, Somalia or a country yeah. where there's like a real threat to basketball yeah, on, on the dirt basketball courts yes. that are uphill. Yeah. Yes. And th that was only so they could like have their token American. So <laughs> self-awareness, I am big on that. I The other thing I would tell folks is to be super, super cautious. The who your advisors are and and whether and how much credence you give to your detractors. I, I see these people paralyzed by the comments of folks who don't know anything about them and why you and I would care what people who don't know us think about us. I just find vexing. People do care. They sit there and go through their social media and I'm not on social media. So maybe that helps. But I can tell you, I cannot be the dumbest person in the world unless you know everybody in the world. Right. And so when I read or used to read, Gaudi is the dumbest person on the face of the earth. How do you know that unless you know everybody? <laughs> but I'm also not the smartest guy in the world. Yeah, it's so clearly not true. Like, it's so clearly inaccurate, but it is hard to just kind of let it go. Right. It, it is unless you master the art of knowing yourself enough to know I'm neither the smartest nor the mm. dumbest. Mm. I just I'm not either one. Yeah. And more importantly, I'm trying to get smarter. 
I'm reading, I'm trying to learn, I'm asking questions to empower you is a skill set I think people ought to have. Knowing yourself, <laughs> there's no reason not to, and then being really careful um, who we let speak into our life positively and negatively are three life skills. You know, what's interesting about all three of those is the root of all of them is really just asking questions, right? I mean, even finding out which people to listen to, or especially which mentors to get advice from, or people to spend time with, is asking them good questions. Even after you've already questioned whether or not they should be in your life, then it's a matter of how do I ask them questions that actually feed my life and help me improve. And then self-awareness is literally just a game of asking yourself questions, right? How else do you become self-aware? It's just continuous cross-examination of your own thoughts, desires, actions, and everything else is how you become self-aware, right? All of it comes down to asking good questions. This actually, one, one thing I've been really studying a lot lately, which is what actually led me to pick up a copy of your first book before I picked up a copy of the book we're talking about here, Start, Stay, or Leave. And it was because I've been exploring a lot of the idea. I, I teach a lot in the podcasting space. We do a lot with companies and, and entrepreneurs, and we help them build podcasts as arm of their you know marketing division and stuff like that. And I tell everybody I work with, start an interview show. Don't ever just just do a solo show because it, for a multitude of reasons, but one of the reasons that I give in that is that it will flex your muscle of asking good questions. And there's almost no other skill set that's more important, especially when it comes with your ability to communicate, to persuade people of something, to examine yourself and become more self-aware. There's almost no skill that's more valuable than asking good questions and learning how to achieve things through those questions. And here's what I would tell you, Travis, is you have a podcast where you ask questions, but you decide which ones to ask. So in reality, you are controlling the content. You're just not controlling the vehicle for the content. You could have asked anything you wanted from the book. But there were certain things you wanted to ask. You didn't ask, why did you dedicate it to whoever you dedicated it to? You didn't ask, how long did it take you to write the book? You, through your questions, did control the conversation. But at the end, I'm going to leave thinking, you know what? Gosh, he sure did let me talk a lot. He must be a great guy. And that's what people think. Oh, <laughs> yeah, what a great right. conversation we had. I'll talk for 99% of the time. That was great. <laughs> we should do that again. Oh, that's so true. That's so true. It just helps in every situation, man. It's the one skill I didn't know I needed before I started a show and the one skill that was the most difficult and most worth it to develop over the long haul. It saved me in so many situations where you're in an awkward conversation with somebody that just kind of got thrust on you or you're talking to somebody who is maybe a hero of yours or somebody who is a potential mentor who you want to get to know better and it can literally be the difference between having a second interaction with that person or having that be the only interaction is just the ability to ask a decent question and then actually do something about it too, right? Is like the second half of that. It's like, you can't just ask questions. You also got to do something at some point. Can I prove your point for you about talking to famous people? I, if you had said, okay, Gowdy, you can meet anybody in the world. Who do you want to meet? I would say, I want to meet Bono. I want to meet Paul Houston, the lead singer of U2. And so I got a chance to meet him. And so what do you do? You sit there and, you know, tell him about yourself. Yeah. You ask some stupid question. So I decided, I met him. I said, I got to ask you, what led you to write a song about Judas Iscariot? 45 minutes later, his staff is saying, Wow. Bono, we really do have to leave. We are late to go. And the guy 
So, you know, he's one of the most famous people in the world. I mean, you would sit there and think, you know, I'll indulge this member of Congress for a second. But, you know, I mean, guy, he's so country, I can't even understand his accent. <laughs> but you ask him, I guarantee you, no one, I mean, they may ask, you know, why'd you write this song? But he wrote a song about Judas Iscariot. I mean, that's not like a super popular person to write yeah. a song about. Right. He loved that question. And he got he got to talk about what he wanted to talk about. And I got to listen. I got to talk to Bono. Yeah. For 45 minutes. Right. It worked out. It worked oh out. Oh my God. Yeah, Most that, charismatic guy I've ever talked to in my life. Oh I, my. I have to imagine. I have to imagine. I'm actually there. They just completed or they're either completed or it will be complete soon. Construction on the sphere in Vegas is like brand new venue that's out here on the strip and state of the art. Like they bought this tar- like audio targeting company from Denmark or something that they used to use it to like tell people on certain platforms on their train station, like the time that the train was coming to. So it like directs audio. So in this big sphere, they'll have people sitting there that can listen to the same thing, but in different languages, because they have the ability to oh, send to different seats. The, the, the screen is the like biggest, brightest, whatever in the world. And uh, the first performance to welcome it to the world is is you two live here in Vegas. So greatest rock um, band of all time, of might, course. Might be a good excuse to get out to Las Vegas this summer sometime, Trey. <laughs> it might be. I wound up meeting him, not meeting him three times. I, I wound up being around him three times. And the the ability to ask a question, a thoughtful question that you've never been asked before. Here he is, one of the most famous people in the world, but he's still a guy. He's still a person. It, and so how do you like ask something that gets him fired up? Something that he hasn't been asked by the four, you know, 4,000 interviews that A he's done in the last five times. years. <laughs> Yo, hey, what's the song one about? Oh, he's, he's answered that a hundred million times, but he's never been asked. Why'd you write a song about Judas Iscariot? Yeah. There's a clip that went viral of Joaquin Phoenix. It was when he was doing his tour after he filmed Joker. And he basically is chewing this reporter out for asking just the most basic question. He's been on tour for promoting this film for like seven months. And the question he asked him is something like, where did you get the inspiration to do this performance or whatever? And he was like, I forget exactly what he said. It was more or less along the lines of, you know, I've been touring for seven months. Like you didn't think anybody else has asked that question before, like come up with something different. And he was kind of a, you know, jerk about it, which is, I think, hand in hand with his personality. But also, you know, when you're touring that much, you're probably really tired and irritable. And it probably would be irritating to get the same question from professionals in their field for the 300th time in the last six months. And it just kind of reached this boiling point with him. Although I would argue Joaquin Phoenix may have started that tour a little irritable. I, I, on the other hand, would have said, you know what? I'm glad you died in Gladiator and the interview's (laughs) over. I'm glad he killed you in Gladiator. And I'm glad that your sister rebuffed all of your advances and we're done. (laughs) Yeah. Kind of give him one of these things. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. A slow down. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. That's kind of how I felt watching it. But the, the point as an interviewer did stick with me that I try to make sure that when I, you know, approach an interview, especially when people get interviewed all the time, that there's, you got to just ask, try to come up with things that maybe they haven't asked before, or from a different perspective that maybe that, or don't let them gloss over certain things that maybe other people have let them gloss over. So man, I've really, really enjoyed this time, Trey. It seemed like I can always tell that, you know, it's going at least decently well when the hour flies by. So I know we're coming up here on the last last couple of minutes. A start, stay, or leave. 
If you're listening to this episode, please go pick up a copy of this book. I'm telling you, you will absolutely enjoy it. I've been going through the audiobook version, which is read by Trey. It seems like I can only do audiobooks that are read by the author anymore. Um, because it just seems more genuine and they're more enthusiastic about it when they're reading it. So please go pick up a copy of that. I promise it will make a difference for you. Making decisions is one of the most difficult things that we have to do in life, especially as entrepreneurs and CEOs. You know, that's really your main job is to make good decisions and to make fast, decisive decisions with with all the myriad of responsibilities that you have as as the CEO or or the the leader of a company. So start, stay, or leave, go pick up a copy of that book right now. But Trey, before we take off here, is there anything else that you would like to leave the audience with before we say goodbye? Yeah, my goal is for you to have a Southern accent after you have to listen to me read that book on audio. I want you to use the word y'all a lot, and I want you to add like six or seven syllables to other words that you use. I cannot imagine listening to me try to pronounce some of the words I that's one thing I learned, Travis. I know how to spell the word. I know what the word means, but I've been doggone <laughs> if I can pronounce some of them. Uh, well, hey, you're you're in luck because all my dad's side of the family is from North Carolina, okay, so good. I, you know, no no translator needed for me. No translator. Good, thank needed. God. I really appreciate you having me on. It's been great, and I wish you all the best in every decision that you have to make, especially the important decision of being a parent, which is really the greatest legacy you will ever leave is your kids. Yes, sir. Hey, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Trey. It was a lot of fun for me. One more time, go pick up a copy of Start, Stay, or Leave. You absolutely not regret it. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for joining me, Trey. You too. Take care of yourself. That's it for today's episode. Thanks for spending some time with me and my friends. If you want to be better friends with me, then head over to travischapel.com slash team to subscribe to my free newsletter, Your Friend Travis, where I share what's on my mind about life, building a business, raising kids, being married, and anything else I would normally share with my close circle of friends. That's travischapel.com slash team. And my biggest ask of you since I'm sharing my friends with you is to share this episode with a friend of yours that hasn't listened to the show yet. Then leave us a quick five-star rating in Apple Podcasts and in Spotify. It would mean the world to us as it helps us make sure that this show continues to be more valuable to you. Thanks in advance, and I'll catch you on the next episode.